0: If you've bought property, you likely funded your purchase partly through a mortgage. If the property increases in value over time by more than the cost of the borrowing, you're better off. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder funds (ASX ticker symbols G two hundred and GHHF) offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses. So read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. Betashares Capital Limited is the issuer. This is a podcast by the Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on
1: solely what you hear in this show.
0: Hey Amy, welcome to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. G'day Owen. It's always fun. We're answering questions and we're talking about the different aspects of buying in particular today. We've got a really fascinating question that's come through. It's the first one off the rank and uh, we love hearing your questions and we love hearing from you just even if it's feedback and the easiest way to get in contact with us is there's a link in the show notes that says ask a question. Just select the Australian Property Podcast. Hopefully in time we can do these every week or two because this enables us to understand what exactly people are thinking about. And there's always something to think about in the property market, Amy. Always. <laughs> always. Then we're just talking off there about how emotional it can be, whether you're a first home buyer or investor, you're in a regional town or you're on the coast or in the city. There are so many factors to think about. But before we get into the questions, it's really important to understand that uh, when it comes to delivering this type of information via a podcast, We're strictly in the realms of general information or factual information. Now we have to be very careful about this because on the investing and stock market side, the regulation is very tight. So when we get to any questions that relate to that, it's really important that you understand that we do not have your personal circumstances, your goals or objectives in our pockets. We don't know what those are. So it's really important that you speak to a financial advisor, an accountant or a lawyer to get the right advice, which is tailored for your situation. Now, without further ado, Amy, the first one is one where I'm hoping we can spend a bit of time today. And the question comes from, and bonus points for being a funny question, a uh, question a name, sorry. The question and name is Planning Ahead. And they ask, in New South Wales, can I approach buyers agents directly, see if they have any clients interested in buying my property rather than engaging a real estate agent? I'm keen to avoid real estate agent fees and marketing costs, which is probably a fair question to ask, Amy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the short answer here is yes, absolutely. You can do that. But let's take a step back for a moment because it really got me thinking with this question. When you're selling a property here in Australia, Owen, I mean, you're a homeowner yourself in the future when you plan on selling, will you sell via a real estate agent?
0: I probably will, to be honest, Depending, depending on the market, maybe as well. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I would say pretty much everyone in Australia will sell a real estate agent. So they'll hire them and they will sell their property, whether that is online, offline, private sale, auction, whatever it might be. However, I don't think there's actual statistics out there on this, but in proportional relative to the amount of people that use a professional to sell their property, very few people use a professional to help them buy a property. And when I say professional, like a buyer's agent, someone like me, but the reality is it's pretty much the same. You're going into this either selling or buying a property. It's a huge decision. There's a lot of considerations. Why do people sell with an agent, but not buy with an agent?
0: Mm. It's because it's the different, like people, this is very common in the United States though, right? Where you would have someone like you almost always showing clients through properties and helping them buy.
1: And, And I just, I think the short answer there is that it is just not it hasn't been the way it's been done for many, many, many years. And because of that, first of all, not everyone knows about buyer's agents. But then, secondly, they think, oh, well, everyone else just does it. All my friends and family have done it. I can just do it myself in the same way that when it comes to selling your property, everyone sees everyone else using selling agents. And I think that's the way it can be done. But you can absolutely sell a property yourself, no issues with that. And then, through that process, you can directly approach a buyer's agent to say, hey, I've got this property for sale. Do you have any buyers for it? And then deal with them directly.
0: I've got a lot of questions around this, Amy. So how would someone who owns a property know that which buyer's agent to go to?
1: Well, you could just Google all of the buyer's agents in the local area, give them a call. Hey, I've got this property. Do you have any clients for it? And if they do, great. We can have a further conversation with them. But let's break this down. So why would you do that to begin with? Well, firstly, when it comes to selling a property, when you sell a property, you've got certain costs involved. You have marketing fees. So to put your property on the internet it might be say five grand. It could be more, it could be less. You might style the property, et cetera. I mean, you've got to pay for a contract. That's a given. But then the real estate agency fees can be quite a lot depending on what you're selling and where you're selling. It could be say 1.2%. Two percent, two and a half, three percent of that cost. So it can be an appealing idea to approach someone directly and to eliminate that extra cost. But could it cost you in other ways? I would say potentially.
0: And when you say other ways, you mean like less demand? Is that what you mean? And
1: that's true. Yeah, maybe just not getting as good of a sale price as you could have by using a professional. Because when we engage professionals, oh, and whether it be even something like I'm going to always go and pay for someone to cut my hair because in theory I can do that myself. Am I going to do as good of a job? Definitely not. <laughs> so in the same way it's selling your property, you know, in theory approaching a an agent and paying them that couple of percent Should get you a better result because they are a professional. They do it every single day. They've got the database of buyers, they've got the exposure, they've got the negotiating skills. That's what you're paying them for. That's why people hire me as a buyer's agent for something that, in theory, they could do themselves as well. And I've had situations before over the last decade. It's not common, but I've got a couple of examples to draw upon here. So I've had a couple of times vendors approach me direct and then a couple of other instances where I've purchased off a vendor direct but they've advertised themselves on realestate.com.au maybe for like um one of those platforms where you pay a little bit to go on that platform and they do all the advertising but you're dealing with the buyers direct and in every single one of those situations those vendors had no idea what they were doing and they ended up asking me for advice And I was acting for the buyer and I felt terrible for them. And I was, you know, I had my best buyer's best interest at heart, but I would have to say things to them like, okay, well, now you have to go and do this, or now you need to consider this, or now you need to do this. And they just, I can say that they did not give themselves the best chance of getting the best price for that property because they did not know how to engage with buyers. I was questioning them on things like, well, how are you going to deal with competition? Oh, I don't know. What do you mean? well, I'll just deal with that when I deal with that. I said, what if you've got two different buyers and one's got different terms, one's got this, or you can do a little auction. They just, they didn't know. So because you don't do this every day, yes, you can go and do it, but do you actually understand the entire process and what happens when?
0: I feel like there's like, there's also the middle ground here, right? Like in a market where it's a little bit more boom time, like I've said a couple of years ago, We talked previously about off-market offers where maybe a seller of a house, a vendor, may be able to sell their home through a real estate agent but without incurring all of the extra marketing costs like the real estate and the domains and all those types of website listings because they can keep it off-market and just use the real estate agent's database they might connect with five buyers agents as well. And then they have their clients. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Well, you're still tapping, you're paying what you're paying for in that instance, because you're still paying a commission there, and you're paying for their database and you're paying to try and get competition. So if you're selling your property yourself, you can put it online yourself and then you can expose yourself to the broader market. Great. But you still got to then figure out how to deal with those buyers. But if you're approaching, say a buyers agent direct and they have a buyer, then you are reliant on that one buyer paying that right price. Or maybe you'd be lucky, a Few buyers, agents, with different buyers. But you are definitely reaching out to a smaller market. And also, I mean, you're then directly dealing with a buyer's agent who is a negotiating professional and they have maybe a bit more power there in the negotiation process because they know what they're doing. So it's up to you if you want to do that. That's but no, no reason not to.
0: So in short, you could do it, But you just need to be very careful about like not overestimating your own ability to do one of these. And then also understand that the buyer's agent works for the buyer for all of their shortcomings. They are wonderful as well. The real estate agents work for you as the vendor. So
1: just teaching yourself about the process, learning about the process. Okay, well, need to get my contract sorted. How am I going to deal with that deposit? You know, your legal representative will then need to have a trust account so that the money can be held there. As the deposit, how are you going to deal with buyers? What are you going to say to them? Having a third party involved in any negotiation can sometimes be much more helpful than dealing with and that buyer or vendor directly. You can say different things to a professional, and then they pass it on to the other person, and it be, can become a lot more tricky. In the same way that if you're ever leasing your property out yourself, hiring a property manager to be that intermediately intermediary, sorry, between you and the tenant. So that they can sort issues out and they can pass messages along, etc. It's so much better.
0: Yeah, it's just cleaner, isn't it? That's a great question from planning ahead. If you are uh, looking to uh, sell your home to one of Amy's clients, I'm sure in but I'm sure you can just reach out to her directly. And sounds like she might like it, but she might also caution you <laughs> against it. So <laughs> the next question comes from the lost millennial who asks, "Can you get a psychologist on the podcast to talk about how to navigate not being able to afford what you want?" A really big problem right now. Amy, a lot of people are a bit of emotional about not being able to afford houses, rents going up. It's all understandable. We have um Kate did see this question come through, Kate from the Australian Finance Podcast. And she's already put out a a bit of a call to action, a call to arms for um some psychs to reach out to us. And she did, it was funny, Amy, she did have uh, I think it was six reach out within the first couple of days.
1: Amazing. Yeah.
0: It's a serious problem for people to deal with. And obviously it's impacting the rest of their life. So we'll be um Stay tuned. Stay tuned.
1: And I'm a a fair to say I'm an unofficial and unqualified psychologist when it comes (laughs) to property (laughs) because yes, I'm an expert in the process and how to buy a property and what to do and when to do it. But then it is such an emotional thing buying a house and there's so many emotional layers on top that I'm constantly speaking to clients about their fears and their issues and their problems and overcoming those things. And, you know, I'm not making decisions for them, but I'm giving them the tools to help think about these, these things and analogies and case studies and examples and saying, have you considered this? Or what about the drawbacks of this? That is my job as a buyer's agent. Yeah. A lot of psychological overlays on top of that. And yeah, especially right now with not being able to afford what you want. And I think that that's a thing that a lot of buyers will experience. And that's for first home buyers, that's not going to necessarily change in the long term. In five and 10 years, we'll still be probably talking about the same thing because I think one element of human psychology is sometimes we do always what we can't have. And even when I have buyers with what I would call really healthy budgets, sometimes we'll do the homework together and they always want something that's just slightly out of reach, whether they've got 500 grand or 1.5 or 2 million dollars always kind of wanting that extra thing. So coming back and focusing on what you can and can't control and you can't control prices or the market or interest rates or anything, but you can control your own situation and expectations.
0: Absolutely. And this is, um, like you said, it's like just human nature, isn't it? It's not always um, specific to property. I see this with the stock market as well. Everyone's saying, waving their fists at the clouds because the stock price has gone up or fallen or the ETFs gone up or fallen. I just think what, doesn't matter how much you wave your fist, it's not going to change. It doesn't make a difference, but uh, just focus on what you can control.
1: There's a saying in real estate called beer budget champagne taste. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) And that's what you want to avoid when it comes to buying a property because you'll set yourself up for heartbreak. You figure that out at the start.
0: I like that. So beer budget champagne taste. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Cool. That's great. Okay. So the next question comes from Sydney or bust, which is actually a very telling name. And I'll be brief with the question because they gave us this whole information dump. And I just want to be clear that when we do talk about a question like this, we are not giving personalized advice in any way, shape or form. We are more just going to read out some of the question. And then it's really important that um, you consider getting personalized advice, particularly in this scenario. I was pretty keen to keep this in the show because I think this may be some people's kind of destiny. And I just hope that they can stop and just get the right advice. So the question says, should I move to a cheaper state to reach financial independence, retire early at 45? I'm 36, live in Sydney and have kids three and five and expenses are pretty high right now. They have $40,000 of school fees, which is three and five, that's already pretty high. Living expenses of 80,000, well, there's 120 already. Living in a parent's granny flat to save cash. And they've got a portfolio, but it's 100% property. They've got two by $2 million New South Wales mixed use commercial properties. They generate 150K of income from that. And they have $2 million in loans with interest of $100,000 per year. They are focused on paying it down. They say they have a good income. The crux of their issue is like they've mapped this whole thing out. But then they say, is it a good idea to stay in Sydney and keep going and pay off the loans and then see what happens? Or should we try to convert the $4 million into a $2 million home right now and build a $2 million share portfolio over nine years? So basically saying, we've gone so far into property, should we start deflecting some of that now? Is this a typical scenario? How would you advise someone to get help on this?
1: And also, Owen, in that question, it, you only read out a quarter of that because it was such a long and detailed one, but they do mention that to pay off that debt or pay down that debt, they would then still be living in that granny fat for the next 10 years, which I think is relevant in this question.
0: Absolutely. Well, particularly if you've got kids three and five, they'd be 13 and 15 years old, living in a granny flat. So just to clear some things up, first, we can only speak generally about this. Secondly, for those of you that don't know what the FIRE movement is, it's financial independence, retire early. It cops a lot of criticism because people do tend to go into extremes in terms of saving and investing, like keeping that savings rate high and their cost low. But that's not always the case. So I want to make that clear. It's a lifestyle choice and it's fair enough. There's a lot of like minimalist things that you can watch on Netflix and whatever about this lifestyle. And it's fine. We all pursue financial independence in our own way, but it's just the, the extent of it that matters. Now, so, so just some, a few things here. So, a so few things that we can glean from a generalized situation like this. Is this typical scenario? I would have to say no, because I don't know of too many people that have $4 million in commercial property, Amy, in Sydney and live in a granny flat. No. Yeah. I would say this sounds a lot like someone who, yes, is motivated by money to retire early, but maybe has got their advice, maybe from just one side of town. So what I mean by that is maybe someone that is getting information from purely from the property side, thinking that property is the only way to build wealth. And now they've realized maybe I can do it other ways as well. And there's a reason we talk about diversification because when interest rates and inflation creep in, it can be quite a scary scenario because when you have so much of a loan, you're basically magnifying your exposure. That's all you get, whether you use shares or property or a business to do that. That's all you're getting. I think it's quite scary for me from someone that comes from the personal finance side of town. And one thing that we always talk about, Amy, over in our investors podcast is not preparing for the future that you think is likely, but preparing for any future.
1: Mm, Preparing for worst case scenario.
0: Exactly. So the worst possible scenario in this is that that one of them loses their jobs, they can't afford a service alone, it starts to get tighter and tighter and tighter, and they are forced sellers of an asset that is leveraged. So in the other scenario, which is what even in the best-case scenario, it sounds like they're going to stay there for 10 years in a granny flat. I don't know. That's a more of a lifestyle choice. Amy, did you have any general thoughts on this? I've got a little bit more.
1: This is the the whole trade-off between lifestyle and finance and building wealth because you can build wealth much more aggressively if you significantly, and this is not for this person, but for anyone, you can go and save up a deposit, get into your first home faster if you maybe move home and get a third, second and a third job and spend nothing. And then it might allow you to purchase a home sooner, but at what sacrifice and at what personal cost? Because there are non-monetary values on your lifestyle and on your comfort in the short to medium term as well. And the first question in this question was Should I move to a cheaper state to get financial independence, retire early, or fire at 45? Nobody can answer that for you except for you. You can surround yourself with the most amazing professionals who can sit down and create a plan for you and weigh up all of your different options and the drawbacks and benefits for all of those things and map them out and that's what you should be doing educating yourself into all of the different options and then figuring out what's the best for you and your family depending on what you want to achieve for example me personally Owen I would never move to a cheaper state even if I could mean working for 20 years less because I love living in Melbourne, my friends and family are here, and I enjoy doing what I'm doing as well. So, what is right for that person won't be right for someone like me, and no one can tell you that externally.
0: Yeah, and one of the things to that's all completely reasonable. Like we talk more from like the the spreadsheet side of town rather than the emotional side, as we just mentioned with the psychologist. But one of the things that strikes me here is that a lot of people that get this type of advice typically like. Go down this path, typically get advice from somewhere. And a lot of people that are in the fire community typically don't get, at least from my understanding, typically don't get costly financial advice because it's expensive. So, what I would say is, my advice in this situation is to get advice and to get advice from a panel of experts rather than one. Clearly, you can afford it if you've got high income, you've got assets. Go see a financial advisor, it might cost you five or ten thousand dollars. They'll probably be biased to diversification. And to having some shares and building up your super and all that sort of stuff as well, even though you want to retire early. And just hear them out. Maybe take the best bits of that. Combine that with the best bits of advice from a mortgage broker or two. And combine that with the best bits of advice from, like, whoever's advising your property. And an accountant from a tax and structuring perspective. A lot of people kind of just hit the inertia button, don't they? I mean, they just kind of keep going down. They're just pursuing their strategy as if it's the one they've decided. We're committed. We're going but you can change. And um, what we would advocate for is that everyone's different. Find the best bits of everything that work for you.
1: And the more complex the situation that you're in, the more important it is to get advice. And I would also then suggest, like you've just said, Owen, maybe approaching even two separate financial planners and speaking to them just because they are a qualified financial planner. They may still have certain biases. I've met financial planners in the past who are not they're not into property. Maybe it's personal or maybe it's just because they're not qualified to talk about it. They choose to, you know, not tackle it and, and not give advice around. It. And I've had some financial planners tell people to not invest in property at all, even though that person really wants to invest in property and m- might be okay, an okay situation for them. So approaching a couple of different people, finding someone who does resonate with you and really mapping it out, I just read this question and I feel like this person hasn't sought financial advice. Because they are reaching out with this situation, and they they seem like they've gone into all of this with a bit of forethought, because they've gotten themselves into a great situation. But is there a long term plan there? It doesn't seem to be the case.
0: Yeah, and this is that's a really good point you bring up, Amy. I'd say every expert is biased because there's no magic strategy for everyone. If there was, we'd all be discovered it by now. But a, a great blogger, just as another resource you might want to reach out to here, uh, Sydney or Bust, is Aussie Firebug runs a podcast as well as a blog. It's a great one to reach out to. So get the advice and get it as soon as possible. So the next question comes from Anupam Gosh who asks, I'm willing to invest in either shares or ETFs. So far, I've only invested in properties so I'm not sure where to start. Which course would give me an idea of every other opportunities? Speaking to a financial advisor, once again, is a great idea here. But um, you can start with any of the free RAS courses. If I was to pick one, I'd say start with the ETF investing course. It's our beginner ETF investing course, but it probably has everything you need to know as well as listening to our Australian finance podcast over at RASC. There's a heaps of other resources outside of us. Uh, if you want to learn about share market and investing, you can listen to Equity Mates, the My Millennial Money Network, plenty of other podcasts that are in your feed or in your podcast player that you can listen to. But we definitely have a lot of those free courses. To get started, everyone that kind of starts down a road typically like consumes information at a rapid pace. And then they figure out, oh, there's another thing that I can consume as well. And I think the more opportunities you get, the better financial advisor can obviously be a field guide for you but in the meantime there's plenty of other stuff that you can access for free out there on share investing and if you do want to learn more about a specific topics let us know right into us
1: and getting what we always <laughs> recommend financial advice but empowering yourself you absolutely have to do that so that when you're getting this advice you can know what they're talking about but also know what other questions to ask there's no such thing as a silly question but you don't know what you don't know when it comes to property or investing or any of these things So nothing beats educating yourself. And then it also means you're not just relying on a professional to tell you something. If that professional maybe their advice and not every professional's advice is going to be perfect for you. So just not taking it with a grain of salt and having a bit of personal responsibility too. Yeah,
0: absolutely. That's what we're huge advocates for, right? Just learning at least the basics to ask the right questions. Yeah. Any of our podcasts that you want to listen to over at RASC, you can do that they're all free. We had a series, if you go to the RAS Media website, it actually breaks down the beginners basic stuff. So you can actually take all the beginner, what we call a starter pack, and it's completely free. So go and check that out. So Anita asked a great question, Amy, which was, I want to ask about property in rural mining areas, typically cyclical, she says. However, most have been down as far as 20% with no growth whatsoever in the last 10 years. Do we foresee any growth in these areas in the near future? I have come across some that have rental yields as high as 12%. General advice only, of course. Yes. Well, talking about regional towns is not even general advice. It's just general commentary, I guess. So, Anita, great question. Amy, what do you think of like rural mining towns and these regional hubs?
1: Well, those areas typically perform when they perform for a certain reason because they're pegged to a large amount of people coming into that area for potentially a short period of time whilst that industry is there and that industry is performing well and bringing people in. So, and then when everyone leaves, if that, you know, mine closes or reduces, then they're gone. And what's going to draw them back in the future? What's going to entice them to come back to those areas? Maybe nothing. So, if that location, it only boomed because it was tied to that industry, but there is no other long-term sustainable structural reasons why people are going to want to live there again, then no, that area might not change. It might not improve. And when you look at yields, yields, if you know, 12% yield, where are you going to get that anywhere else? But is that yield in itself sustainable too? Because those people are renting there. And also bear in mind, the yields there are high because there are still people that probably want to or need to live there, but there's no buyer demand for the properties. And that's why they're high because there's going to be a rent floor there. But are those people going to be renting there forever? Why are they currently living there? Why are they boosting that demand? And if that changes over time, if you could be guaranteed that 12% for the next 10 or 20 years, well, that's kind of appealing, isn't it? But what if all of those renters leave? Then not only do you have no one to rent your property and yields are lower, but then you've got no growth as well. What's the point
0: in that? Yeah, that's a good point. But you can have both, right? That's probably what we say is that you probably can have both. So,
1: Yield and growth. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: We're in the bond market, which is, I won't bore people with to death with the details, but basically people invest in the bond market for income because the capital component is typically seen as more safe, but we still have, if you've seen like the big short or whatever, Amy, you still have, you still see that some bonds default where they don't get, where people don't get their money and basically a bond is an IOU, right? But in the, the data, we can see that the riskier the loan, which is what a bond is, the higher default rate. So what we do as a profession, as uh, like financial advisors and wealth managers, is what we do is we take the yield and we subtract the default rate. So say if it was twelve percent, and the default rate for that category of bond is three percent. It might be like a nine percent net yield. And the reason we do that is because we just assume that it's not always going to be smooth sailing. We might get it right, but we might get it wrong. Now the difference with bonds and property is that every property is unique. So maybe you do find a good property and it can go up. And with bonds, they're all the same. So it doesn't really matter. But I just bring that up as like the balance between risk and return is something to consider. A lot of people that see these opportunities just see return, they don't see the risk, which is what you mentioned.
1: Yeah. And when it comes to these mining towns, there have absolutely been speculative investors who have done very well because they've got in at the right time before prices increase and before yields increase, but then they got out at the right time. If you get out when, It's already starting to fall down around you and it becomes really challenging. You might not be able to sell. You might actually have to then, if you've bought towards the top because you've gone in a bit late and you've got out a bit late, you can end up in a in a far worse position. So yes, you can do well by timing it, but that is very, very speculative. And yes, absolutely very, very risky. I liken it to a kind of another situation where there is this, there are a couple of suburbs in the outer west near Geelong where sometimes I'll have investors call me and they say, this area looks like a great place to invest. The yields seem fantastic in comparison to other suburbs in that area. And I say to them, have you been to that suburb before? Have you gone there and driven around? The yields are high because there's a lot of people renting there because they can't rent anywhere else necessarily. quite a lot of social housing there and therefore no one actually wants to buy there. So, yes, you might get a great yield, but limited growth and then also potentially problematic tenants as well due to the demographics. So, there is so much more to it than just looking at the on-paper return.
0: Hmm. Well, those mining regions um, in WA definitely went through those boom and bust cycles. I think one of the things that people look for in these areas, maybe, Amy, is like a catalyst. So, like planning and development for like mining or like new construction projects or even like council works and things that are planned for the area, maybe that brings in demand. But it's just about knowing when demand is peaking and when it's lower or average. I think a lot of people in this game also tend to think, we tend to say long-term, but what we really mean is we're not thinking long-term. For example, when we say stay in a property, aim to invest and stay there for years, we actually mean years, whereas a lot of people are thinking, well, maybe this year I buy it and in a year or two I sell it which in my mind, I don't know about you, Amy, but I'd still categorize that as very short term.
1: Oh, and property. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of years is very short term. But yeah, if you're looking, if you're trying to get ahead of the market and getting into these areas before they have an upswing, figuring out if you're going to have an exit plan as well, because if the reason why it's grown is only because it's related to one particular industry coming into that area, what happens if that industry leaves or changes? What are the longer term growth drivers If of that area, do people have diverse employment opportunities? Is it drawing people in who have higher incomes over the long run or only contract workers or only people who are going to be there for a little while and then they're just going to leave again and take their money elsewhere? So looking at it from that perspective and, you know, if you want to get in and get out, if you can figure out the right time to do that, you can do okay. But again, very high risk situation and a lot of people have lost a lot of money by not timing it properly. Mm.
0: And also, I'll just add one final thing, just make sure you speak to your mortgage broker about it as well, because there may be implications for buying in these areas around what you can and can't finance. So the final question comes from Mr. Doubtful. And they say, I know this is a tricky one, but what happens if I buy a property and later discover something is really wrong with it, like structural pests, mold, et cetera? Can you tell us if it's possible to get recourse on home insurance or against the builder? How about the inspector who did an inspection? And do you always get a building in pest inspection, Amy?
1: Okay. So this probably deserves oh, and it's whole, its own whole episode. And in the future, we'll have a special guest come on who talks a lot more in depth around all of this. But I'll answer it from a couple of perspectives. First of all, I get a building in pest inspection on every single property, even apartments and even brand new properties. Every single property. An apartment can still have issues that you can't see, mostly to do with moisture, leaks, issues behind the wall that you can't see. And then even brand new properties, sometimes they'll have mostly cosmetic defects, but they can add up. And then we can sometimes get the builder to the vendor to repair and rectify those defects prior to settlement, which would have cost my buyer more to repair themselves than the cost of the building inspection. So short answer to that is I always get that to answer the other part of that question is home insurance. So your home insurance generally covers you for things that are more like one-off events, like a storm or a fire or a flood. Think about it like that. Not from like defective building works or things that have happened over time. Say you've got a slow leak happening, generally won't cover you for things like that. So in which case, You get the building inspection at the start, but then over time, you maintain your property and you check your property and you keep an eye out for things which could suggest issues happening that you might not be aware of under the floor or behind the walls, et cetera. But then, when you're buying a property and just say it's a relatively new build and their issues become evident over time, this is, um, I think, there's a lot of misconceptions in the real estate world that builder's warranty insurance, for example you can just go claim on that insurance. It's not how it works. Domestic building insurance is something which you are only covered for if that builder goes insolvent or dies or, you know, runs away and you can't pursue them. And you've only got limited coverage under that anyway, but otherwise you have to pursue them through other recourses, through civil recourses. You have to go to a mediation if you've got issues and then maybe go to VCAD and, You might get an outcome out of that. You might not depending on that builder and it's time and energy. And in the meantime, you might have a house with issues. So when it comes to buying a property, there's no way to completely protect yourself. There's always a bit of an element of risk, but a building and pest inspection is probably the best thing that you can do as a buyer to understand any risks that are already there and already evident or could become problems in the future.
0: Just roughly, I know varies by an inspector or state order, but is it a rough cost of what people could expect for a building in pest inspection?
1: So my builder's around $600 for a standard-sized home. If it's a really big home, they might charge maybe $800. This is real ballpark, by the way. And then for an apartment, say $300 because you wouldn't need a, a pest inspection if you're you know, on the third floor, for example. But you're talking about a drop in the ocean in comparison to what you're spending on a property.
0: Absolutely. Like the preventative there is incredible. I've seen it, like the downside of this. The other question that I had is more just like a general statement, whether it's like you kind of agree with it or not, is um, it would seem that it's kind of like buyer beware then, right? Like it's kind of like, yeah, sure, there's, there's all these other bells and whistles that you probably get like thrown around, in, around the place, but maybe don't use them as like a reliable like backstop In your strategy, it's actually like the onus is on you as the buyer to make sure that it's okay.
1: It is. And I mean, I'm thinking for here in Victoria too, we've got this thing called material facts where just say that Vendor is aware of a serious problem with that property, like a termite infestation or structural issues or something that would, in theory, cause that buyer to either not purchase that property or to reduce their purchase price in negotiations. In theory, they are supposed to disclose that here. But If they don't and if you buy that property and you settle, well, then you have to pursue them after settlement and then you have to prove it and then you have to go down that legal path and that can cost you time and money and it's so much more challenging in that case, especially the the element of proof too. So
0: yeah, you have to prove that they knew about termites or they knew about the building defect or whatever.
1: That's right. And you know I I appreciate what this kind of legislation is trying to achieve. But the practicality is that, I mean, I had one not too long ago where there was a planning application over the road, a little bit just further down of a big new social housing complex. And I found out about it and I approached the agent and they were like, oh, well, yeah, no, we knew about that. And the vendor knew about that. That should have been disclosed in the contract. And it wasn't. And I said to them, you need to disclose this. You need to put that in there, and I said to them, "You're protecting yourselves as much as you're doing it, just because it's the right thing to do." And they ended up then changing the contract, and it actually it spooked a lot of the other buyers away. We ended up being the only buyer on that property because my client didn't didn't mind, and they were aware of it. Great, but if they'd bought that property and they didn't know about it, and then they settled, and then that happened, how would we been able to prove that the vendor and agent knew about it? Yeah. So just because it exists doesn't mean people do it. You've got to do your own due diligence.
0: And this is why you need a, a buyer's agent in your area. People like the material facts thing, I didn't even know that existed, Amy. So uh, I just took everything that the real estate agent told me. It's like, that's great. That's a bit glossy, but I'll just do my own homework. Thank you very
1: much. 100%. And that's only in Victoria too. In other states don't believe that that exists. But yeah, it, it doesn't. just because it's there doesn't mean you can rely on it.
0: Yeah. But um, it's about being your own kind of analyst or researcher and investigator and going find these answers to these questions. And if you're not satisfied, the risk to you is obviously the risk to you. It's not the other people that deal with it. It's you. So make sure you ask those questions and you get the answers to them and engage the professionals that are necessary. We've covered a lot of ground in this episode. We do love your questions. So if you are listening, watching, whatever, and you do like the Australian Property Podcast, hit subscribe and uh, let us know what you think. But also send us your questions because this is the best part of the show, I reckon, because we get to hear what's on your mind and, and the challenges you're dealing with, particularly things around property, uh, your experiences around individual properties or building like a if you have a portfolio and your experiences thus far, please reach out to us using the link in the show notes. In the show notes, you'll also find links to Amy's course. You'll find a link to download Amy's 100-point inspection checklist. So this is a free checklist that you can download. It's in there in the show notes. Literally just click the button pop in your email address and Amy will email it to you. It goes through a hundred different things that you should consider. Whether you're in an apartment or a house, there's a separate section there, which is just so useful. I I know it would have saved so many people some time and some money, Amy, if they had it in their hands. So that's a great thing to get in contact with Amy as well. You'll find the links in there as well as us at RASC. And finally for Pete and Chris, you also find their links in the show notes. They do awesome work and you'll hear them on the show regularly. So Amy, that's the pitch done. Hope you enjoyed uh, chatting with me about all these questions and uh,
1: and congrats to both of us, Owen, for getting through this episode. Both being quite sick and not coughing, coughing and spluttering the whole way through. Good work. I was
0: going to say <laughs> we're both drinking our waters off to the side. If uh, anyone that's watching you will see that. Uh, I think we did pretty well, so uh, we can step away from the mic now and just let our throats recover. So, Amy, heaps of fun as always. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks, Owen. See ya.